Hi, my name is Priya Arora, and I'm an editor, writer, critic, and activist. And you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. My name is Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with talented and interesting individuals linked to the global Indian and South Asian community. It's informal and informative, adding insights to our evolving cultural expressions, where each person can proudly say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Hi, everyone. On this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, a conversation with journalist and podcaster, Priya Arora. Stay tuned. You know, it's been an excellent journey to share conversations on Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. And thank you so much for listening to this right now and sharing it with your friends and family, rating and reviewing and downloading wherever you find your podcasts, and for following us on social media at Dr. Abhaydarnikar. I'm a true believer in finding ways to advocate for those who may be vulnerable. And certainly as a pediatrician, I'm grateful to do this every day. Now on this podcast, one of the takeaways from listening to many guests, for me at least, has been the power of the written word and conversations and storytelling to be amazing vehicles to spotlight those who may not always have a voice and whose narrative may not always have a pathway to be uplifted. So I was particularly grateful to share some time chatting with Bria Arora, a queer, non-binary South Asian American journalist who is dedicated to uplifting the narratives of underrepresented communities. Their roles have been diverse as a writer, editor, critic, and host sharing from the vantage point of a South Asian American on a range of topics, from pop culture and entertainment across the diaspora and in South Asia, to offerings from the California experience, to vanguard perspectives from the LGBTQ plus and non-binary communities. Priya's portfolio has included bylines at the New York Times, HuffPost, India.com, Brown Girl Magazine, The Juggernaut, and The Aerogram, and prior service on the board of the South Asian Journalists Association. Their work is so authentically personal, reflecting on insights of their own journeys and experiences, like the podcast they've hosted called Queering Desi, and writing interests that coalesce with that of so many, like Priya's Kitty Party, a newsletter which reviews South Asian streaming content. Now, like me, Priya grew up around Los Angeles and spent some formative time in New York City and now is back in Southern California. So as we chatted about a range of things, I asked them to reflect a little on what it was like to be back home. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing has been moving back as an adult. You know, I spent most of my 20s in New York. And now in my in my early 30s, I'm I'm kind of getting to know my city again. And I think coming back with a wealth of knowledge and experience has been really great because LA has all the things you know, the beaches, the sunshine, all of those things that are, are easy to market, I would say. But I think the experience of living here, the experience of coming back, having learned and experienced what I did, I got to come back here and rekindle connections, people that I grew up with, you know, things that feel familiar for me. Um, As South Asians and as children of immigrants, we often talk about what is home, right? And so for me, LA has a sense of nostalgia to it because there are pockets of it where I'm like, oh, I remember doing that here. I remember seeing this person here and and reconnecting with folks, like I said, who I grew up with um, as an adult has been really, really um, moving for me. I've, I've really enjoyed kind of getting to know LA again in this phase of my life, um, beyond sort of the vegan tacos, surfing sort of (laughs) like the idea that people have of LA. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, you know, getting vegan tacos in like that at water village scene. 
I guess <laughs> as you've rediscovered LA, have you been on a mission to rediscover yourself? Has there has there been some parallels there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you come back to a city that you're supposed to know or seems familiar and you're a different person. And so suddenly the city or the place feels unfamiliar as well. Yeah. Um, so I like to think of it as Ellie and I are getting to know each other again. Yeah. Um, right. And in, and that's also my own journey. You know, I've had a significant couple of years here when, yeah. as I've moved back and, and navigating that for me has been both challenging and exciting, right? So part of it is understanding that home is what we want it to be. It's not a particular place or a person or it's feeling totally. right. And so for yeah. me, finding that feeling in LA, uh, making new memories here, uh, building new relationships here yeah. um, as an adult has also been part of my personal journey for sure. It's funny. I think that, you know, you and I probably have some of those parallel lanes. I went to New York uh, to go to medical mm -hmm. school and then I came back to California. And mm -hmm. I think timing is also a big part of it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like where you are in your life and and how you're discovering mm -hmm. yourself, irrespective of the location. But I'm sure that journey yeah. actually um, tends to be a little bit more sweet, or for that matter, bittersweet, right? If you are, if you're also coupling it with the nostalgia of where you grew up as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think going off of that, I think for me, it's also been grounding in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I moved during the early pandemic before there were vaccines. And you know, there was so much uncertainty at the time. I didn't know when I would see my parents, uh, you know, being stuck in New York, it was really bad over there. So yeah. I think for me, it's not only been about personal growth, but it's been about a little bit of anchoring. There's been so much turmoil and so much change in the last couple of years, both personally and just overall for everybody, um, yeah. that actually having some kind of anchor, I wouldn't even say a home, but but an anchor. I have, I'm lucky to have my parents here in the city. I'm lucky yeah. to have some connections. And so it feels like there's been a groundedness when not a lot of other things have been surrounded. I'm curious about one one thing. You know, I've asked this to other people before, but like other than your name, what actual mm -hmm. anchors are there about being South Asian American, either, either tangible or, or intangible? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question. I think for me, it's so much of the cultural stuff. Like for me, Bollywood was always formative yeah. um, in who I am and what I listen to and what I watch and enjoy and how I speak. Um, I learned Hindi from Bollywood very young. So right. for me, something like that is an anchor and that goes with me everywhere, right? Like yeah, that's yeah. that's beyond identity for me. So, so something like that, I would say, I would say the language for me too. Um, yeah. There's a comfort in Hindi and Punjabi and Urdu that, gives me a sense of anchoring that, that this is familiar. This is something I know in the core of who I am. Yeah. Um, so I think there are a multitude of things. And I think when I interact with other South Asian folks, it's also been exciting to, to find those similar anchors and then yeah. reflect that to each other. And I think that's what creates so much bond within our communities as well. You know, you have a front row seat to the South Asian American and even just sort of the Indian and South Asian entertainment uh, mm -hmm. world. But, but what in particularly for the South Asian American experience, what is the South Asian American entertainment community in some ways learned about itself in the last couple of years, especially as we've seen a pretty amazing evolution of this in the last, you know, I mean, to keep some institutional and historic memory, right? Mm -hmm. Not just the last three years, but the last five years, 10 years, 15 years yeah. or so. Yeah, I think what's really, really shifted and what I've learned by being back in LA and making these connections in the industry has been what you're saying, that shift. And I think what's driving it is a new generation. I would say our generation, but even folks younger than us who are saying, you know, the mentality of old um, of saying a minority, a model minority mindset and also there's room at the top for one. We got to edge each other out to get there. Yeah. Um, that is gone. We are finally in a space where 
we have social media and all these other means to create and tell our own stories. And the South Asians that are doing so are saying, hey, everybody, if I can do this, you can do this. You have a great idea. You have this skill set. You have this. Let's all come together and build a platform together. And so you're really seeing folks within the industry who are South Asian saying, let's all come together. Let's celebrate each other. You know, there are so many events now where people from different walks of life, different shows, different experiences, people who have been in the industry for decades, people yeah. who are new and, and are mentees of these people all coming together in one room because yeah. we're finally in that sense of, I don't got to edge anyone out to make it. We can, there's room for everybody at the top and let's help each other up and build that ladder together. You know, the skeptic would perhaps say that, is that just simply a honeymoon period? And the natural <laughs> pendulum veers back to saying, look, someone's got to live in the top of the pyramid and, and others are, are sort of in there. Although it's a nice yeah. cultural shift, hopefully, yeah. that sustains itself, that hopefully that doesn't necessarily happen. But is that the natural evolution? I hope it's not. But yeah. does that naturally happen in this kind of community? That's a great question. I, I do think there is an idealism to it. I, I won't say that it's all rosy and, and easy, but I will say that I think the folks that have been here the longest, that have been struggling, that have done this in isolation for years, seeing some of that shift, even if you're kind of crabby about it, well, I had to do it. Why is no, Why do they not have to right. do it? You know, I always right. say there's two kinds of people. I went through something, so I'm going to make sure everyone else has to go through the same thing. Or I went through something, I'm going to make sure no one has to go through this. Yeah. And I think we're leaning towards the latter, which is even folks who struggled, who did this alone, who had to change their names to be more white sounding, you know, folks yeah. like they, they are all coming together and saying, you know what, I see this shift. And even if it was harder for me, I'm going to back, back your efforts. You know, I may not yeah. have been the one to be able to do this in my time, but I'm going to back these efforts. And so I do think you need that cross collaboration for yeah. people with different experiences um, to say that this is going to last and this is not just idealism or, or saying that right. this is a honeymoon phase. I think it, I think it could be, absolutely, but I think yeah. you, it requires a buy-in from all kinds of people, and I do think that that's happening. I wonder also if like, and I, I hope that's happening uh, as well, yeah. and I, I wonder if it yeah. sort of like adds a vitality to it in the sense that, yes, it's important to bring as many people under the tent, is there also some value to having those folks who actually, it's not so much edging others out or leveraging talent mm -hmm. or, or, or that kind of thing, but perhaps actually really striving for excellence in that, you know, there is, there is a importance to sort of stratifying talent or even art. Yeah, I think the hard part about that is what defines that, right? I think right. for this industry in particular, that's always meant money, eyeballs, who's yeah. backing you. Um, and I think, unfortunately, in the past, a lot of folks had to compromise story ideas or character names or accents, things like that, that, that yeah. tell our stories. Um, they had to sacrifice that to be able to be accepted by a mainstream, to be able to achieve a certain level of success in the way sure. that you're talking about. And I think... There is an understanding now that that's it's not all of that. I mean, don't get me wrong. You still you still got to sell the idea. It still has to make money. Yeah. You want it to have the widest release possible. All of those things, right? Yeah. But I think there is something to be said about who defined that, mm. and and a lot of people coming in now and saying, even if this doesn't make millions of dollars, this is my story and this is worth telling. There's still value to that. There's some value to that. Yeah. And I think that in itself is a sort of excellence because a lot of folks who came before didn't have that luxury of saying, I'm going to stick by my story. I'm going to stick by my idea. And this is what's important. So you know what, as that power perhaps get more, gets more democratized, mm -hmm. is there a separate lane 
in the industry for a South Asian American pop culture? Or is it just naturally expected to be integrated into this larger American story kind of zeitgeist? I think there's, I, I would like to think that there's room for a separate lane. Yeah. I think, like I said, with having our own platforms and means of doing this, you know, a lot of South Asian folks in the industry are now creating their own production houses, their own, yeah. you know, streaming deals and production deals. And so I think there is this understanding that you don't have to sell it to the larger audience or the mainstream audience or the white audience. You have shows like Miss Marvel or even Never Have I Ever that are saying, you know, these are the stories that are tied to a South Asian American experience and that not everyone's going to relate to them. You know, you yeah. might be a Marvel fan, but you may not understand the nuances of a partition episode or, a, you know, like that is for our yeah. people. But you might be asking those questions now. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And you might you might pique your interest or you might go on a deep dive of your own. But right. I don't then have to explain that to you. I'm coming in with the knowledge that, you know, the South Asians who see this are going to understand it on some level. Yeah. And, and I think the, the nice part about that one is, is that I think there is a, a deeper relationship that now happens with just about any audience. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break. Let's come back to a conversation with Bria Arora. Stay tuned. Conversation. It's the antidote to apathy and the catalyst for relationships. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians, so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is Madhuri Dixit, and you are listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dandekar. Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation now with journalist Priya Arora. You and I both had a very um, shared experience in that we both mm -hmm. got to hang with Madhuri Dixit this last year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. I'm, just, I'm so curious from your yeah. vantage point as sort of an expert in this industry, mm -hmm. what were some of the surprises that you felt uh, in being able to chat with her? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm curious to hear your experience too, because I've interviewed a handful of Bollywood folks, and I think it surprised me most when uh, there's an understanding of a world beyond India specifically as well, not, and not only South Asia, but just the world overall too. And so there have been a handful of folks like that, but Madhuri stuck out to me as somebody because we all know that she spent time abroad. Um, there was truly an understanding and a verbiage and uh, I think from a fundamental place, a genuine wanting to relate these stories. You know, she was coming to streaming for the first time. She knows this is global. So yeah. wanting to relay these stories to an audience that she, where she lived for a long time and she knows kind of how people think, um, she was able to sort of verbalize those in a, in a lot of great ways for me that I think um, sometimes celebrities have trouble doing. She's really tapped into what the South Asian diaspora experience is because she mm. experienced it herself. Right. Um, and also sort of a relatability at the same time. You know, when we were talking about the fame game, you know, I brought up at one point, this didn't make the interview that I did, but I brought up at one point a scene with her, the, the character that plays her son, who yeah. comes out to her and how she was just immediately accepting. And I mentioned that I had never seen something like that on a mainstream streaming show or right. South Asian kind of platform. And the way she sort of responded to that, right, of, of not only saying love is love, which is sort of easy to say, yeah. but really like, hey, love is universal. There's an understanding that we should be able to connect 
you know, beings with each other. The way she talked about it with an understanding of the ideas behind it, I think was really great and was really indicative of her open-mindedness. And, and I think her experience, like I said, of living abroad. And so yeah. when she's now back in India, I think she has the power to then move the conversation forward, to have a scene like that in a show and understand the importance of it and not say, ooh, I, I don't know if I want right. to do that, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like a lot of people would. And so I, I think that struck me. There was an understanding of a lot of the things that the diaspora experiences as well. Yeah. And um, she was just also really humble and great. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, she yeah, just, I mean, she's everything you think she would be. <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, I was struck by some uh, a similar sort of vein in the sense that like, and and not knowing whether that's a commonality among Bollywood icons in that way, mm. but I, I was definitely struck by the the tone that probably resonated from being a parent of someone mm -hmm. who's also now a, growing up here in in the United States. I mean, that's something that we share in common. We both have teenagers in college in California, so yeah. you know, I found that that kind of perspective was something that hit me as well, along with the kind of genuineness and authenticity and. And I think yeah. Madhuri, um, kind of in her stature and in her this, I would say like the second phase of her career that since she's been back in India, like, I think there has been this thing of, I don't have to achieve a certain star level. I'm already here, right. which right. allows that freedom that you're saying. Cause I think a lot of other folks, even though they may have achieved a certain type of success, it's a rat race. You know, you yeah. gotta get the next yeah. release out. You gotta, you sure. gotta stay relevant. You gotta, yeah. Madhuri, I think has embraced not only, I don't, I don't need this industry. I want to be here. Yeah. And I'm going to let my work speak for itself. I think that it's a unique privilege. And I think she knows that. And she can say like, well, now I'm going to do stories that I care about or that really right. mean something to me because I don't have anything to prove. And so I think that may be also the difference um, is that she's able to sort of sit back and, and make those those different determinations and than other folks who, yeah, have something to prove, honestly. Is it both inevitable and perhaps myopic to think that Bollywood still governs so much of the energy mm. of the diaspora. Is there more to the diaspora, diaspora's hold in pop culture or in just sort of who we are than Bollywood? Mm. Is it equally an anchor as much as it is baggage um, sometimes? I'm so curious what yeah. you think about that. No, that's a great question. You know, I think the shift of the last several years, I remember the first, one of the first pieces I wrote um, about streaming was about Made in Heaven and and yeah. how it sort of changed the game for, for South Asian streaming uh, stuff. And I think in the last several years, what has happened is that Bollywood, mainstream Bollywood, theatrical Bollywood and streaming have really seen a rift. And of course, that is accelerated by the pandemic because you have theaters shut down. You have, you know, I did a story as well about how Bollywood had to, you had Cooley number one or other films like that that said, we can't wait for a theatrical release. We're now going to have right. to turn to streaming. Yeah. And so I would like to think of it as the diaspora. There's two different things now. I don't connect personally as much to Bollywood or mainstream Bollywood or what we think of as Bollywood as much as I may connect to streaming or other originals, right, that are coming yeah. out because you have more uh, women directors, you have more queer stories, you have yeah. more cast-based stories. You you're see a different variety of things that are not being censored in the same way, that right. are not being policed in the same way, um, and that are uplifting voices that we haven't heard from before. Sure. So I do think in the diaspora, there is a lessening, I would like to think, a lessening of the importance of Bollywood in that way. You know, you have a Pathan come once every three months or a Salman Khan release every Eid, yeah. but you don't often hear about, we used to go to the theaters when I was growing up, like almost every other week when there was an Indian movie out. It was just like, right. okay, it's here. We got to see it. You know, we're going to, or get a bootleg copy, whatever. Yeah. You got to see it every other week. Time to go to Cerritos. 
Yes. Yeah. It's time to go to Cerritos. Exactly. And so I think that there's an understanding that's happening is that Bollywood in its mainstream theatrical way has really, really segregated from the streaming world and that. And I also think globally, we're seeing for South Asian diaspora, a widening of the lens, I would like to think of Mm. Hindi cinema. So you have regional languages within India, but then you're also seeing stuff from other parts of South Asia. You know, the way that Joyland has had such a successful run on the festival circuit um, leading up to the Oscars has been so exciting to see, right? Because you wouldn't have that kind of awareness in the diaspora about folks or films outside of India or outside of the Hindi language, right? And so I think it's been really great to see um, a widening of that lens. I think it's accelerated by streaming, but I also think it goes beyond streaming because the diaspora is sort of switching the way that we think about mainstream Bollywood, big big screen entertainers versus this is an intriguing story yeah. and I want to binge watch the whole series. <laughs> it's almost, uh, I mean, the, the lens gets so broadened that way mm-hmm. and it in some ways kind of like is this wonderful new smorgasbord for anybody who has that kind of voracious appetite for the content, which leads me to think about Priya's kitty party, which is absolutely quite the party because (laughs) you are are such an an incredible surveyor and, and helping consumers for that matter, and really sort of audiences who are either getting introduced to this kind of content or are real veterans of this kind of content. I had one thought in thinking about Mm -hmm. your work, and that is do you actually ever get saturated with with looking <laughs> at this stuff? And by the way, does that saturation yeah. sometimes actually help to carve out and understand the diamonds in the rough? Yeah, I absolutely think there's a saturation that happens. You know, I stepped away from Kitty Party last year, both for personal reasons, but also there was just there's just a lot more content out these days now. Yeah. And you do have to be a lot more selective about what you're what you're looking at. And I, I sometimes come from a place of I'm not looking at enough stuff. Uh, you yeah. know, I still tend to because of my own comfort level. Hindi or Punjabi series or movies, um, you know, and, and just what accessibility I have to some of the shows and movies that may not be released on global platforms. You know, I sort of think of, I come at it as I wish I was doing more, (laughs) but there is a saturation, uh, indeed. And I think what helps with that is that there's a variety also, right? So I try to balance it with, if I'm going to do like a true crime series and I'm going to also mix it in with a comedy, um, maybe a a rom-com that's, even though I'm going to eye roll about it, I will mix that in. Um, But I've also sort of broadened my non-South Asian lens to help with some of that that saturation as well of saying, I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to, maybe I'll rewatch Friends or The Office or something else yeah. or or something entirely different so that I can keep that palette fresh for sure. And and come back for the bigger stuff. I think for me, it's being a lot more selective about what yeah. I review um, right. and things that are resonating. Like if I'm seeing conversations about something, I definitely want to see it. Yeah. But it's also if I'm not seeing, you know, I recently watched Trial by Fire on Netflix. Yeah. Um, I love Abe Diol. Yeah. Um, it didn't get a lot of buzz. You know, I didn't hear people talking about it. And when I talked about it with friends, they didn't know they had not heard of it. Um, so I try to also balance it with that, where even if I'm saturated, having something that maybe is a little bit off kilter or something right. that people aren't really picking up on, um, that excites me more. And then that helps with kind of change it up. And then do you find the links to the non-South Asian content actually changing your perspective on what you're, on how you actually watch that? Does it ever blend in enough to say like, oh yeah, I just, I, I'm watching Friends, but I can clearly see these themes elsewhere 
in the South Asian yeah. content or the Bollywood content that I've seen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think of this with, cause I personally love true crime or heist or action stuff. And yeah. so, you know, I was recently watching Kaleidoscope on Netflix mm -hmm. and yeah. seeing a lot of the similar, um, you know, it's a heist show, but yeah. You know, there's been a lot of crime dramas out of India in the last yeah. couple of years. And so really comparing the production quality or the storylines, you know, I think something like a Delhi crime or or even trial by fire to some extent um, have been at that level. Right. Um, even Cat by with Randeep Huda um, on Netflix as well recently. These are shows that when I'm watching stuff that's out of South Asia, I sort of am like, I'm actually more proud of it because I think that streaming yeah. out of South Asia has really stepped up in terms of both storyline and production. Totally. So I see the themes and stuff like you're saying as well but i also realize that there is now global money netflix amazon right. all these places putting in money to bring the quality of those stories um up higher and and it's definitely on the same level as as some of the shows that you see globally my family and i were addicted to this one marathi serial called rudram mm -hmm. in which mm -hmm. um it's it's another sort of crime detective with a, okay. a wonderful female lead named Mukta Barbe, mm -hmm. but the, there were so many Breaking Bad themes in there. It was, yes. it was you know, yes. Saul and the whole thing. It was just yeah. all very, very um, <laughs> parallel there. So we, we enjoyed that for sure. Yeah. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, let's come back to our conversation with journalist Priya Arora. Every story told is a lesson learned, and every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share conversations with global Indians and South Asians so everyone can say, trust me, I know what I'm doing. New episodes weekly, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sigvisor, the founder and CEO of The Juggernaut, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Hi there, and welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and let's rejoin our conversation now with journalist Priya Arora. I, I wanted to wonder a little bit about this idea of being a lighthouse for others, because mm. in sort of appreciating your work and, and the stuff you've written about and what you've been very passionate about, do, do you accept being a lighthouse especially for those in the South Asian queer community? And is that a responsibility that you've come to embrace? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I don't like thinking of myself as a lighthouse. Um, I'm sure that others would disagree. I think that there is a responsibility that comes with it, though. I know that I have the privilege of being out and visible and have been for many years in a way that a lot of people don't get to be. So I do feel a responsibility about that. You know, I have been very public about, you know, my my own journey as a queer person, whether that's yeah. family, whether that's relationships. You know, there was a time that I was on a fertility journey. I took it sort of upon myself to to be open about that because I grew up not seeing that. Um, yeah. And I do think some of that lens has shifted a little bit. Um, there's a cost that comes to being that open about your own life. And I do think that my, my own view of that has changed a little bit. But I think of it as I still get people who listen to Queering Desi or look at my posts and message me and say, I, you know, I've never seen a South Asian queer person or yeah. thank you for sharing your story. I still get messages like that all the time, even though I'm not as active in, in both of those 
realms. And I think that means something on a different level for the little Priya who grew up, like, like I right. said, not seeing anyone who looked like me. Yeah. Um, so I, while I don't like to think of myself as a lighthouse, I do know that there is a certain visibility that comes with what I do. And, and I take that very seriously. I think, yeah. um, even though it causes me hesitation at this time in my life to be open with that, I hope that I always get to, to continue to do that because what makes us human is also what will relate us to each other. Um, and so I think I think of it as the best thing I can do is be my authentic self, even on something like social media that doesn't reward authenticity right. all the time. Yeah, nor is it always so forgiving either. Yeah, I, and it makes me feel sort of um, lonely in that because I think yeah. there's a certain expectation when you're very active on social media or in the public of carrying yourself a certain way or you know going for the likes or here's my niche area. Right. For me, I was always just sharing my truth. Here's yeah. who I am. Here are my flaws. Here are the good things. Here are the bad things. Yeah. Um, and so, but like I said, there's a cost to that. And I think what I can do for my community is continue to be authentic to who I am. Um, and I, I'm very grateful for that responsibility at the same time. But I also know that I'm able to do this now because there are folks before me, you know, I came up in a time when there weren't a lot of, you know, there was no social media when I came out, yeah. there was no. And, and so now having that ability and saying, I can connect with folks who came before me who didn't have the opportunity, you know, sure. going through my own fertility journey, it was wonderful to connect with other South Asian queer couples who had done it, but in yeah. a different time and in a different space and a different um, societal understanding of those things. You know, right. it wasn't that I was doing it for the first time, but those people's journeys were not documented. They weren't sharing yeah. them. They weren't able to talk about them. And so there's a lot that happens offline too on, on that responsibility. Um, so if I can bring those stories to the forefront, either through my writing, through my podcast, through my social media, social media yeah. I consider that um, even a bigger thing because it's not just about my story. It's about all these other people's stories um, in our communities that never had the chance to share their stories. When you think about the cost of, mm -hmm. of the journey and you think yeah. a little bit about the stories that aren't being told, yeah. Is that the kind of balance between challenge and reward and, you know, being a storyteller in this space while also recognizing that it's not the only version, that there are so many other versions of that story, both being told yeah. and untold there? How, how do you kind of grapple with those stories that aren't told? And does it motivate you yeah. to make sure that they're actually getting out there and, and trying to sort of like, you know, enlighten folks to, to that, that space as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's been one of the key things that has driven my podcast is is yeah. what are the stories that are not being told? You know, I I started out with just I'm going to I'm going to have on guests in, in the community that I know whether they're known or not. A lot of them were. Um yeah. but as this pro the podcast progressed, you know, I started to see that I was connecting with folks in the community who had their own stories to tell, who, who weren't, it was just like, here's my friend who, right. who adopted a baby. And I want to learn how this gay couple adopted a baby. And so I'm going to have them on the podcast, you know, to hear the wealth of experiences, um, beyond what their profession might be beyond what their, you know, or country of origin might be, or language might be, I think has been a, a core part of the podcast. And I think the other key part for me, which I had struggled with was that it wasn't about my story. You know, I often yeah. felt like, I had shared my story. I came out, I did the thing, and now this was about others. And I think in this realm, like I, we were talking about the cost of, of sharing some of that, yeah. I think it's been a balance of finding, hey, this is my story and I do want to share it. And I've sort of hidden behind the work that I'm doing to be able to say, I don't want to share my story. This is about other people. Yeah. But for it to be okay for me to come forward and say, no, I, 
I also want to share my own story. And it doesn't mean that mine is, is the one to, to sort of that represents everybody, but saying that, um, in uplifting other stories, I don't want to also lose my own story as well. Last year, I was thinking a lot about the legacy of Urubashi Wade. Mm. And when you reflect on what she meant to the community and how important of a figure she was overall, how does that legacy actually live through your work and in some ways Mm. get celebrated with your own kind of persona and your professional career as you kind of go forward now? Yeah, I mean... Urbishi, I had the pleasure of meeting her um, a couple of times in my New York days. And I I think from the very early parts of that, I had not yet developed my arm as an activist. And she was yeah. co- sort of critical in that. Um, when I met her, when I learned about her work, um, it really changed the way I thought about things. So I think for me, one of the ways that her, her memory and her legacy lives on through me is that activism. You know, yeah. she was someone who wasn't afraid to speak up about injustices, who was very loud about those things that she cared about. And I think even in those early influences, may, I may not have known it explicitly at the time, but I think she was very formative in how I found my voice as an activist. So speaking yeah. up about the things that matter and not saying I'm going to stay quiet. You know, anyone in my life would tell you I'm the first person to sort of address a problem head on. I'm not going to sort of put it in the back of the closet. So yeah. I would like to think that's one of the ways that she really influenced me. And the other way is, and I wrote about this when I reflected on her legacy for the juggernaut, but one of the main things and the reason I connected with her is because she was somebody who, if you cold called her or cold emailed her, she would respond. And she was always accessible to the community and the communities that she was a part of. And and we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, sort of lifting others up in the community. And so she lived that. She lived that through her work. There was room for everybody. She wanted to bring everyone along with her. She wanted to, if you if you had a buy-in, great. If you didn't, I'm still going to speak up about it. Yeah. But she lifted others up with her. And so I would like to think that you know I'm modeling the, the journey I'm on after that as well, of saying not only does my story matter, other stories matter, but yeah. also how can we all uplift each other as we're sort of progressing through this journey yeah. without saying you know my story is more important or what I care about or my opinion is more important, but saying there's room for all of us. And so this happens all the time. If people reach out to me or message me or email me, I will respond. You know, I, I make it a point, even if it takes me a few days, um, I make it a point to be accessible to the community if I can. And if I have the bandwidth to do so, because that I think is important for us to build connection with each other. You know, the South Asian queer community, unfortunately can still be very isolating in a lot of ways. If you're not in safe spaces or if your, your family is not understanding, you know, I think we still have a lot of work to do as a community. And so I think having, we talked about the responsibility of being visible in this way. And, and I take that seriously. And I think Urbishi lived that. It's why I was able to meet her. And and I would love to carry on that legacy of being accessible to my community and saying, hey, let's 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 lift you all up with us. I've I've talked with others on this broadcast and, and show and presentation mm-hmm. about the importance sometimes of calling things out and labeling mm-hmm. it. And yet the risk, in fact, therefore, if you do that and you do it too often, of also getting kind of boxed into a tribe. Um, sort of yeah. even boxed into a tribal mentality, um, especially when there already is a loneliness in that tribe. Yeah. Um, how, how do you feel about, in some ways, how we can get away from this kind of tribal mentality that like my labels are the only things that define me in, in some ways? 
Yeah, I think sort of facing that discomfort a little bit as a community. Like, I think, you know, I've been called a disruptor. I've been asked why I have to be so out, you know, all of these things. And a lot of those things have come from South Asians specifically. And so I think leaning into the idea that labels are not the only thing that define us. They're challenging us to think outside of what we've what we know. And so I don't want to just necessarily be known as a queer non-binary person. I want to be known as Priya. And so I have these labels, but if that label is so off-putting to you that you don't want to get to know me as a person, that's going to create some of that division, like you're saying. And so I think we have to challenge ourselves as a community to say the labels exist and they may be words that we don't know, or we can't define, or we don't have words for in our own languages. But at the same time, we have something in common in our humanity and in our beings. And that if we get to know each other on that level, the labels and the other things don't matter. You know, I think the discomfort comes from being that disruptor, being loud about it is what are people going to think? What are people going to say? What are, you know, but, but we're the ones doing that. If we're saying, Hey, you should pipe down because someone's going to hear you talking about this stuff and judge you, you've already judged me. And so I think we sort of point fingers at saying, you know, Hasan Minaj and so many other people have talked about what will people say? But, but by saying that itself, I think we've never turned internally and saying the people who say that are the ones that need to sort of examine where they're coming from, because they're the ones they've already said their judgment, you know, it's not about other people. And, And, you know, as someone who's therefore so passionate about offering spotlights to areas that are being ignored or in the dark Mm -hmm. right now in that kind of forest of underrepresented people and thoughts and ideas, how do you prioritize the story that needs to be told next? I don't think there's a prioritizing. Like, I think sometimes I feel like I'm running out of time. Like I'm running out of energy. Like there's not, there's not enough time and bandwidth to do all of the things that I want to do to uplift all the stories I want to uplift. But I think that also I have to challenge myself and say, I'm not the only one doing this work. Um, there are so many others like me who, who are passionate about these things. And so it's not a race against the clock. It's not, which story do we tell first? It's, the fact that we're telling these stories, it's the fact that we're doing this work. And so I have to remind myself that that there isn't sort of a priority. It's It might lead with what's most available right now, who I can talk to next, um, sure. what is an idea. You know, when I was going through my fertility journey, I was very invested in talking to folks about their fertility journeys or couples. or And so it might be the phase of life I'm in. And that's right. okay too, right? right? Whatever drives that work that I'm doing, the fact that I'm doing it is more than enough. And yeah. also, yeah, just allowing space for Hey, others doing this work too. You know, I'm proud to have started Queering BC in 2018, but I know that there's a, there's more South Asian queer podcasts out there. And I love that. I love that there's yeah. been kind of a world open up about that. And so it helps diffuse that pressure of saying, I'm the only one. Right. I have to I have to tell the right story at the right time. The fact that I'm telling these stories that I want to tell these stories, that's more than enough for now. I'm so curious whether your writing in many ways is meant to be not only just a mirror of your world as you see it, but is is it perhaps also or is there a balance between using it as a, a window into the signals and descriptors of the self-discovery process that you're going through as well? Yeah, I think it is. I think my writing changes all the time. You know, I went through a lot of personal stuff in 2022 and my writing voice changed, right? And it sort of alarms me now to go back and read some of that stuff. <laughs> I think it absolutely is like a reflection of of me changing as well. You know, the way that I wrote uh, six months ago, three years ago, um, is not how I would write today as well. Sure. And so I think it also depends on the subject. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time talking about entertainment and writing about those things. 
it's very different to write about my own journey. And I haven't done that in a long time. You know, I'm, I'm working on a book now and it's a very different process to sort of bring that out. And so my voice as a critic that you might hear, you know, in Priya's Kitty Party, my voice as an activist that you might hear in Queering Desi is also a different voice than me going through what you're saying, that process of self-discovery or these sure. various phases of life that I'm going through. And so I think that voice shifts a lot um, and I have to allow for that flexibility, but it absolutely does reflect, you know, and I think that's that's part and parcel to me being trying to be my most authentic self is if this is raw, if this is challenging, I'm still my voice is going to change as I'm writing about it. That's OK, because it's still authentic to who I am in that moment. And and two days from now, I may write it differently. But what matters is, is in this moment who I am and sort of piecing that together as well. Well, being raw and challenging and shining lights on areas that are underrepresented, I think we're all grateful for it. Priya, thank you so much for, for joining us for a conversation and I hope we can do it again sometime. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Thanks so much, Priya. And you can please check out more of their work at priyaaurora.com. And remember everyone, please find a way to spread kindness, especially to each other and to our planet. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar.